We hear so much about Betty Friedan and the feminine mystique. And the whole thing was women find power and fulfillment and identity outside of the home by working professionally. The thing that that leaves out is when you go outside of the home, who's in the home? Like that work never went away. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul Smith, and I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. Today, I am chatting with Angela Garbez, author of Like a Mother and her brilliant new book, Essential Labor. I am a huge fan of Angela's. We've been sort of admiring one another from afar over the internet for several years now. And this is our first real-life conversation, well, real life over Zoom, if you will. We talk a ton about her new book, which is all about the social construction of modern motherhood and what we need to do to truly support mothers, but also all caregivers and care work in general, how to elevate it, how to value it, how to make it financially valuable in our culture. It's a really fun and sort of surprisingly funny conversation for what's a pretty heavy topic. I think you will get so much out of it and even more out of her book, Essential Labor, which I really recommend you run right out and get. So here is Angela, but first a quick break. Hey, if this was a normal podcast, I'd be stopping right now to tell you how much I love a diet app, but it's not a normal podcast, so we're not doing that. Instead, I'm going to tell you two quick ways you can support the show. First, subscribe to Burnt Toast in your podcast player, and for bonus points, leave a rating or review. This is free, and it really helps folks find the show. Second, consider becoming a paid Burnt Toast subscriber. This gives you full access to the Burnt Toast universe. You'll get subscriber-only bonus episodes of the podcast, all of my reported essays, and full access to my monthly Ask Virginia column, all delivered directly to your email. You also become a part of our Burnt Toast community with commenting privileges and our super awesome Friday threads. It's just $5 a month or $50 for the year. Click the link in your episode description or go to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com to subscribe. And thank you for supporting independent anti-diet journalism. Hi, Angela. Thanks for being here. Hi, Virginia. Thank you so much for having me. So the new book is just incredible. I want to know, you know, how are you doing? How are you feeling when this airs? It will be your launch week, but right now we're just like a few weeks out from your launch. So yeah, how are you feeling? Thank you for asking. I'm feeling so many things. <laughs> I'm feeling tired. Yeah. <laughs> and I hate to be the person that leads with I'm tired, but um, I still feel like writing a book is a frankly terrible process. Um, and I feel like my brain is still sort of recovering from that. And I was on kind of an accelerated timeline. Like I finished edits on the book in like December, January, and now it's coming out. But I mean, I'm excited. I feel like I have been cooped up with these ideas and these thoughts for like two years. And I am ready to like be on the loose. Yes. <laughs> like I'm ready yes. to, you know, COVID variants willing. I'm ready to go on tour and connect with people. And like, I'm really desperate for that yes. <laughs> like, to contact and conversation. So I feel really good. And I feel proud. I feel really proud of the book I've written. And I'm trying to just hold on to that because amidst all the chaos that is going to happen and hearing what other people think, I want to always remember how good I feel about this book and how that's really the only thing that matters. 
I'm curious, did the idea for the book, like it is such a sort of, I don't want to say a pandemic book because that's oh, no, going to be okay. a, I think of it a weird genre. Book. I'm not trying to put you in. But it is very of the moment. You're really articulating all of this about motherhood right now. So did it sort of come out of the pandemic or was it something you've been thinking about? Because it also ties so closely to your first book. So the secret history of this book is that I sold a second book like right after my first book came out in 2018. It was a book of essays about the human body, like the body as a lens for how we move through the world and how we process the world. I was trying to write that book for two years and it was due summer of the pandemic. And a couple of weeks into lockdown, I contacted my editor and I was like, there's no way. There's no way I can meet this deadline. And that's really, for me, I'm like, I'm a professional. Like I always get it done. And luckily she was totally understanding because she was like, I just told my husband, I think I have to quit my job. (laughs) (laughs) So like everyone was going through this thing. We really were. So we, you know, we pushed the deadline back several times. And then, you know, I used to co-host a podcast. I think it's a wonderful podcast. It's called The Double Shift with my friend Catherine Goldstein. And she invited me during the pandemic to co-host this with her because she wanted to continue to make the podcast during a time in which it felt almost impossible to do it. And during a time in which we both felt mother's voices and the voices of caregivers were both vitally important, but on the edge of being erased and just, you know, consumed by domestic work. And so there was an episode that I said something to the effect of, When mothers, and this was after 865,000 women, dropped out of the workforce in one month, which was September of 2020, because no one could be a caretaker, a virtual school proctor, and a professional worker at the same time. But so I said women's participation in the workforce is directly tied to their participation in public life. And what happens if women disappear for a year or more, Mm -hmm. you know? And so... From that lighthearted thought, um, <laughs> I have a wonderful editor. She has since left, but her name is Jen Gann. And Jen Gann is just a really smart editor who reached out to me and she was like, do you want to write about this? Mm-hmm. I want someone to write about it and I think you need to do it. I had not been writing and I was scared to do it, but I basically put every bad thought I'd been having about disappearing, about feeling unsatisfied by domestic labor, about questioning ambition about just everything. And I Mm -hmm. wrote this piece for The Cut that ended up going a little bit viral. Mm -hmm. And like Elizabeth Warren retweeted it. Career highlight for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) And I realized, oh, like I've been isolated and alone with my depression and my concerns, but I'm not alone. And so many people are feeling this way now as everyone's trying to force us out of the pandemic, you know, facts to the contrary, you know, these problems aren't going away, you know, childcare, figuring it out on your own, you know, our society's treatment of mothers and care work is we have not solved that problem. No. And it is a long standing problem that we have never properly reckoned with. So that's a very long answer to how I wrote this book. The one nice thing about it is that there's a lot about embodiment in this book. And while I was not unfortunately able to like, cannibalize everything from the first book. (laughs) It did feel good because all of that research that I had done that I couldn't figure out how to make it work. But a lot of that research and some snippets of writing made it into this book. And it also made me feel like everything I've been doing has not been a waste of time. You also go back in time. You give us this whole history of care work, you know, tracing your family's history. I think it really helped me and I think it will help a lot of people 
put what happened in the pandemic, which caught a lot of us by surprise, right? People with yeah. privilege were caught by surprise by how hard mm-hmm. it was to live this yes. way. And obviously it was not news to the majority of people, but you know, those of us in our bubbles. And it helped me put in context, like what is happening right now and why is it so bad? Why is it happening in this way? And so I think it absolutely transcends the pandemic because you're explaining this much larger systemic issue and also looking ahead into, you know, well, where do we go from here with it? There is a snippet from the book I wanted to talk about in detail. There's actually two little quotes I'm going to read. He wrote, the pandemic revealed that this can happen to anyone, that work won't save affluent white women, despite Betty Friedan's theorizing. Ultimately, they cannot ever fully outsource domestic labor. It still comes down to them. And then later you wrote, it makes white women uncomfortable to think that they are no different from their hired help. What they chase and have been given is validation, acceptance, and success, but only on terms set by white men. I mean, Angela. Angela. (laughs) So good. So good. I read those. I underlined them. I came back and read them again. And I was just flashing back to like so many phone calls with editors, so many reporting trips. I remember being on a reporting trip when I was pregnant with my second daughter and like really like visibly pregnant and feeling like I had to hide it and downplay it. Yeah. And this weird guy who worked for the Philadelphia mayor was like making comments about it. It was like a whole thing where I was like, I can't be pregnant in this public space because it's getting so weird for everybody. Oh you know, I can't be who I am. Right? I can't just exist. <laughs> but yeah. also like, this is what my body's doing right now. And I also have to do this work anyway. Yeah. These ways in which we are conditioned to downplay our kids, to downplay our responsibility to our kids in order to seem professional and successful. And, you know, for a lot of us, the pandemic is what made it impossible to maintain that lie. Like your editor, I was in the same boat of like, okay, I'm just not working for several months here. And yeah, but I would love for you to unpack for us a little further why this is so specifically a problem of white feminism. I mean, I want to start by saying that I'm really glad that you want to talk about this. I think, you know, a little bit as I was writing it, I was like, this feels risky. Like, um, (laughs) you know, like if I was just starting out, I'm like, do I want to? call out white women. Like, as a woman of color, that feels and still feels a little bit risky. Mm -hmm. But this really gives me hope because I feel like what's happening now is that there are, and, you know, my joke is, you know, some of my best friends are white women. (laughs) But I feel like there's a reckoning that's happening. I know that word has been overused in the last couple of years, but I think that people really want to understand what's happening and why they feel so betrayed Mm -hmm. and why so many white women felt and, and we're righteously angry, you know? And like, to me, I want to harness that power, which is why I want to keep talking about it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mainstream feminism, which is white feminism, has always had a race problem. Mm-hmm. You know, just like the United States. <laughs> we have never fully acknowledged the history, right? So, you know, we talk about Susan B. Anthony. Susan B. Anthony didn't want the great suffragette, did not think that Black women deserved a vote. So Betty Friedan, her whole thing, and, you know, I shouldn't have to say this, but it's like, these women contributed to society. I am not trying to take away. I'm not trying to come for them. I am trying to point out. You're not canceling Susan B. Anthony. (laughs) Whatever that means. (laughs) Whatever that ever means, yeah. (laughs) I just feel like these people were human. And we get told, like, well, first of all, we only get told, like, who decides what goes into history, Right. We hear so much about Betty Friedan and the feminine mystique. And the whole thing was women find power and fulfillment and identity outside of the home by working professionally, Mm -hmm. right? The thing that that leaves out is when you go outside of the home, 
who's in the home. Right. Like that work never went away. Right. And that work, which, you know, there's a history. We have a history of slavery mm-hmm. in this country. We have a history of Black women working for free in the home and taking care of children and cooking and cleaning, you know, of Black women as property. Mm-hmm. And so that was easy to sort of slot women of color and Black women into these roles as domestic workers. And because they'd always been working, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Doing mm-hmm. this, this labor. So I, I just want to point out that women and specifically affluent white women were sold like a bill of goods. Yeah. And I think boomer women, especially, I think a lot of white women now are sort of reckoning with this. A lot of boomer women were like, I can have it all. And that's the huge lie that we're yes. still grappling with. Like you cannot have it all. No. You know, or even if you come close to it, then someone will be like, can you hide your pregnant body? Right. It's very inconvenient to me right. that you are overflowing with life. Right. You know, like, <laughs> but so I think that because white women are also oppressed, right? But there's a better chance for white women to attain success or to fit in. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is sort of, you know, oppression sucks. But um, the thing that marginalized communities and marginalized women and people and women of color understand is that. This world wasn't built for us. Mm -hmm. And so success is sort of unattainable, Mm -hmm. you know, or at least I'm speaking for myself now, sort of like this classic shiny version of white feminist success is out of reach. I started self-identifying as a feminist when I was 12 years old and nothing I read ever talked about my mother, who was like an immigrant from the Philippines who worked and raised three kids. Like marginalized people have a better understanding of who is left out. Right. Of conversations. And white women haven't been challenged to imagine themselves in other people's shoes. They've been encouraged to, you know, lean in. But to go back to history, when we think of feminism, we don't think about Johnny Tillman. Most of us don't think about Johnny Tillman or Mm -hmm. the National Welfare Rights Organization, who were contemporaries of Betty Mm Friedan. And their work was organizing to make sure that women and families who received welfare which was called Aid for Families with Dependent Children at the time, were able to access aid from the government. And they were at the time, they were subject to just impromptu searches of their home because the government thought that if they were giving them money, then they had the right to come in and make sure they weren't, like, sleeping with men. Because if men were in the picture, then they shouldn't have any support. Like, it's ideas of deservedness and who... Yeah, yeah. What I'm saying is that the NWRO and Johnny Tillman were working in a multiracial coalition for poor people and... Their analysis, when faced with the same scenario that, you know, Betty Friedan had, was that, oh, we should have a universal basic income, (laughs) and we should eliminate poverty, and we should make life better for as many people as possible. And so that's also history that we don't hear about. And so that's why I think it is really to our detriment, like what white women are taught is white feminism. And actually there is and has always been a much more inclusive feminism, the feminism of women of color, of marginalized people. And it's time for people to understand that and reckon with it and realize that it's solidarity. You know, like I quote Sylvia Federici in the book that, you know, all women are in a condition of servitude when it comes to the male world. I mean, there's so many places I want to go with this. I think, you know, this distinction you're making between Johnny Tillman and Betty Friedan is so important because it really is showing us that the answer was never to try to live on men's terms and try to, you know, white women were told, go out and chase success on men's terms, and that's how you'll Mm -hmm. have freedom. And then that's leaving so many people out of the conversation. You're doing that on the backs of so many other people, but we won't talk about that because you're going to finally feel equal to men. And what you're arguing for is that 
we need to reject that whole system. We need to do something really different. So I really appreciate how you articulate that. Tell us a little more about what you're arguing for instead. I mean, it seems like it's really about making care work more visible and more valued in our culture. So care work is essential to life. It is the work that makes all other work possible. And it's really, I mean, it's mind-boggling when you when you realize the extent to which we have tried to make care work invisible. Mm-hmm. The way we have devalued care work, you either do it as a labor of love as a woman, or you outsource it to women of color and you pay them poverty wages. Mm-hmm. I mean, domestic workers are, I think it is three times as likely to live in poverty than other workers in any other field. Mm-hmm. The median wage for workers in America is close to $20. The median wage for domestic workers is $12. So what I'm arguing for is that actually the only work that matters as a human being is taking care of people. I was struggling with this, like in the pandemic with the like, I'm using air quotes, the mask debate. I'm at a loss. Like, I don't know how to convince people that they should care about other people. Right. If they don't already like have a sense of that. And I think it's a very human and innate and beautiful urge that people have to take care of each other. I think our culture has sort of like beat it out of people mm-hmm. where like this culture of individual of hustle and grinding is like every man for themselves. I'm looking out for number one. It's not working. Mm-hmm. You know, the pandemic showed us that we can't do it alone. And so what I'm arguing for is the visibility of care work, the absolute insistence on the importance of care and viewing care as labor Mm -hmm. that should be respected and valued culturally and financially. Yes, that makes a ton of sense and is tricky to implement because you just keep coming up against the ways in which the systems don't allow for it. Do you know what I mean? But I think holding that as the starting point and the goal feels really critical to making any change. I do feel hopeful that we're having a moment. I think it's going to take longer than I thought. Mm -hmm. You know, like, when we got our new administration back in 2020, 2021, whatever, when we got the Biden administration, we were talking about paid leave, Mm -hmm. right? Like we had been experimenting with like the direct stimulus payments to people. There was in the American Rescue Plan, the Advanced Child Tax Credit, which did lift a lot of families and children out of poverty, like 4 million of them for the brief time. Like even though that money was allocated for a year even though we have a Democratic leadership in Congress that died and the funding lapsed. And so we're backsliding. And I definitely have felt really disappointed and disheartened by that. But the fact that we are talking about these things, Mm -hmm. the fact that we had those things, there's like these glimmers of hope. And I also just see, too, that maybe the government isn't coming to save us, right? Like, we've known that since the start (laughs) of the pandemic. You know, certainly the Trump administration wasn't going to come and save us. The Biden administration feels like a grave disappointment to me in this sense. But what I do see and what I always saw through the pandemic is that we take care of each other. Mm -hmm. You know, we have pods, we have mutual aid societies, Mm -hmm. we have play dates, we have community fridges, we have little free libraries, and so I've seen the flourishing of that. And that, again, is to me the most beautiful human thing of caring for each other. And maybe we don't name that as such, but I want to spend some time naming that and acknowledging that and saying that that is how people survived and are continuing to survive. I'm glad you brought that up because that was a big takeaway I had from the book. You know, I would read it and I would think, 
I am craving community so deeply. And a lot of it was, you know, I was reading it at a time when we were pretty locked down, not fully locked down, but you know. Didn't you have COVID at the time? I think I, that's right. That's right. I read it while I had COVID. I was like, why did I feel so alone? It was because I couldn't leave my house. Yes. (laughs) Thank you for reminding me of that. Yeah, no, I mean, I was like, this woman is a hero. Here she is. I think I was like, Virginia, you don't have to do this. No, it was actually amazing to read it while I had COVID. It was, I highly recommend it to anyone getting COVID now. Well, I'm honored that I got to keep you company during a dark moment in your life. It was fantastic. Well, and because it was this moment where I was having to parent really intensively because Mm -hmm. the four of us were like locked in our house together. And both Dan and I were like really sick, but at least like sort of trading off who felt more miserable and like, okay, you need to lie down. I'll go do something. Now you lie down. The kids were not sick at all, which was great, but also meant that they were very energetic and we were not. So they had needs. Yeah. So it was a great book to be reading. So I was like, I am really in this care work right now in this very intense way. And I want to go back to the community thing in a minute, but that does remind me another question I'd had while you were talking. One thing I thought about was that I often don't like care work. You know, I don't Mm. enjoy it. I love my children, you know, standard disclaimer, but I don't enjoy a lot of the minutiae of negotiating with someone about socks or making a potty try happen. And I'm not someone who was ever like, I would love to be an early education teacher. And maybe this is sort of my white feminism coming up again, or maybe it's just my being a heartless person who doesn't like children enough. Um, (laughs) We're both. (laughs) But I have fallen into this trap of outsourcing, of, you know, no, no, my career still needs to matter so much. My motherhood is going to be a smaller part of my identity because of not taking that sort of more pure pleasure in it that I thought I was supposed to. Mm. And what I like about what you're arguing for is if we really value care work and elevate it, number one, I think we can make it more pleasurable, right? Because it can be less isolating and draining. And it also creates this sort of opportunity where if you don't love it, it's less awful that you're outsourcing, you're valuing who you're outsourcing it to, right? Like it creates a sort of more collaborative community approach towards it. So. Yes, like to, to be like, I appreciate you so much. Take my children. Right. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> and you know, the thing that I feel when you say that is like, you shouldn't have to choose. Right. That's the thing, you know, like you should not have to choose. And I hate that. So many of us are left feeling bad or like, is it me? Am I heartless? Mm-hmm. Am, am I a bad feminist? Right. Or like whatever. Like we internalize that. And it's, that is like when I just really want to like press pause, like let's back the drone camera up and be like, this is a systemic issue. Mm-hmm. We hate women. Our country hates women. It really hates women of color and it doesn't value care work. And that's not for you or me to solve individually. We can't. Right. And I just want to point that out, too, because I think that's a very familiar feeling that people have. And, you know, I am someone who actually or did um, take (laughs) great pleasure in care work. Not all of it, Mm because straight up, a lot of it is drudgery and and um, tedious. Yeah. And and so many fluids and so many, like, the little silver corners torn off of a fruit snack thing they're everywhere like that's the, my thing these days yes. <laughs> and also just the feeling that like no matter what happens in life it somehow always comes down to me on my hands and knees with a sponge yes like, like, yes so you know care work is not great and when that's all you have to do mm-hmm. right which is what the pandemic showed us like 
as someone who actually enjoys like a certain amount of care work, like loves to cook, mm-hmm. you know, is satisfied by sweeping, just weird things like that. I felt like I saw the pleasure bleed out from it in the pandemic. And it was really hard to enjoy the things that right. I used to enjoy. And so I don't expect everyone to be suddenly like, oh, I love doing care work and domestic labor. But I'm arguing for and talking about some of those physical pleasures of care and and how satisfying it can be to care for yourself, too. Mm -hmm, Like, mm -hmm. you know, like that, quote unquote, self-care, like meaningful self-care. Taking care of your body is so, it feels so nice to give yourself a rest. And I just wanted to give people a space and I wanted to give myself space to reimagine these things. I was like, if I'm going to be doing this care work, I can't hate it. Life is so hard. (laughs) If you do nothing else today, but like keep yourself alive and love on somebody else, you did a lot. You did a lot. That's a really good day. Yeah, it really (laughs) is. It allowed me to take more pleasure in the parts I do enjoy reading your work. Mm. You know, like there's parts of, like you said, the sort of satisfaction of sweeping or yeah, there's small pieces of it I do find really rewarding and have sometimes felt embarrassed to admit I enjoyed to like that's the other piece oh right because then you'd be like I'm a housewife right like we could unpack all my issues yeah I mean I don't like imaginative play with my children like I don't want to play hide and seek I don't like to like do the kitty cat game where we meow like it's just not really my thing you know and I'm always like oh my husband's more fun because he's willing to do that stuff Mm -hmm. but like I have more patience to like sit and read on the couch with them The other thing is young children are so different. Like my children are seven and four now, and I feel like I'm emerging from a dark tunnel. I agree. Yes. (laughs) My youngest is four too, and it is a turning point. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Thank fucking God. Because it's really hard for a while there. But I mean, like, I love talking to my kids. Mm -hmm. There's so much work to be done. And like, you can sort of divide and conquer or do things like as a team and yeah, to try to make things easier or more pleasurable. That's really helpful framing. So to go back to community, which I also wanted to talk about, because yes, as I said, while reading your book, this trapped in my house, I really missed community. Mm-hmm. But you know, I'll be honest, even when I don't have COVID, I'm an introverted person. We live mm-hmm. in a fairly rural area in the Hudson Valley. So there's like a lot of ways, I mean, we are part of a small town, but we don't even like live down in the town. We live sort of out in the woods. What advice do you have for us? Like being a better part of my community feels so fundamental to mothering is social change, to valuing care work. But Mm -hmm. like, how do you start if you're not naturally good at that? Yeah, that's a great question because I think a lot of people feel challenged. They're like, I want to do something, but I don't, I don't know what. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know where to start. The first thing I would say is that small is great. I remember when you were in COVID, you had posted though, like a friend brought you groceries. Yes. So I think, you know, part of it is just like these little, like little gestures, like actually do go a long way. You know, like if it's safe to have a play date, having like a kid over to like explore the woods by your house Mm -hmm. is very cool. So maybe it's reaching out to someone you don't know very well Mm -hmm. and maybe even a parent that you suspect you might not like that much. (laughs) But, you know, like, (laughs) but just inviting them. You know what I mean? Like community doesn't have to look any particular way. Mm -hmm. I think it is stepping outside yourself, feeling part of something bigger than yourself and contributing to it in a hopefully positive way. Mm -hmm. Or also, you know, if you're in a position of privilege, like one great thing to do is like to be a community member who does not reap a benefit of community, Mm. right? Who is in fact the person who is giving, whether that is money or time, that actually feels really good 
to care for somebody else and expect nothing in return. We always think in community works, right? Like in a reciprocal sort of way, Mm -hmm. but maybe the effects are not immediate. This is sort of my like existential philosophical answer. Like, I mean, I think it's, you can start small and simple. Yeah. But then I think you can also just move through the world and do things that are like decentering yourself. I like focusing on small. It feels doable. It's the littlest things that are so meaningful and that like, make you feel like a human being mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. make you feel like part of something. And I think we are not all made for the grand gesture. Right. You know, like right. I'm so grateful to activists who are like in DC, like not giving up talking yeah. to people. Like I know that's not my role. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I know it, you know, like, and I'm not going to pretend like those are not where my energies I think are best served. Mm-hmm. Right. And I used to think maybe that I was rationalizing and that I was really just lazy and like not that good a person. I do struggle with that. I think everyone has a role to play. Mm-hmm. And I think it, yeah, sometimes it takes some work to figure out exactly what that is. Meanwhile, you just started a fund like through your newsletter <laughs> and the podcast to like support democratic elections happening in states. So it's not like. Yes, that's true. I, I'm good at the <laughs> online community thing. I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. Like that's huge. And it's really important. And you're engaging your community. I appreciate that. And I do think, especially for us introverted types, online community can be much more doable. But something you capture so well in the book is the value of in-person community and those connections, both in terms mm-hmm. of how it can lead to social good and also just in terms of how it yeah, makes the care work visible and makes us happier people. And yeah, it just gave me a lot to think about. So I also, of course, want to discuss your beautiful chapter, Mothering as Encouraging Appetites. Mm. I am quoted in this chapter, so full disclosure, I'm obviously biased to love it. (laughs) (laughs) And your writing and your work is definitely like a guiding uh, force and spirit in the chapter. So thank you for you for you and for your work. Oh, thank you. Um, Well, it's a really powerful piece of writing. You're talking about owning our appetites, you know, coming to terms with our bodies and how this is one of the sort of most powerful things we can do as mothers is helping cultivate that in our kids. Yes. And you wrote about realizing you don't take after your own mother physically. You wrote, I decided that being a little bit fat was the price I paid for always wanting seconds. I don't know why I didn't shrink myself, only allowed myself to expand both in size and in personality. I love this so much. I feel like this is my mission for my children is just not wanting them to shrink themselves and realizing that, if this is the body that you have that allows you to be a happy and like fully present person, this is the right body. Yeah, that's a perfect body. So, yeah, tell us a little more about how you arrived at that place and, you know, how it informs how you're parenting your daughters now around food and body. I'm not a stereotypical petite Filipino woman. And I really sort of struggled with that. I mean, now I look at pictures of myself in high school and I was like, I can't believe I thought I was fat. You know, like, but. Being thin is just, the message is so clear growing up, being thin and being white. That's how people will recognize you as beautiful. And I, you know, I have struggled with my own self-esteem issues, with my own body acceptance and body issues, but I feel so grateful to whatever it is that's part of me, right? Or what, you know, whatever it is in my soul or brain, like, Diet culture didn't interest me. Like, I liked to eat more than I wanted to do. Like, I just really loved eating. And I was like, I'm not going to stop. You know? right, like, right. I don't know what it is. I, I mean, part of it is that I really think, like, to go back to something we were talking about earlier, like, I am just all about 
physical pleasure (laughs) and pleasure. You know what I mean? Like I love fudgy cheeses. I love like really sour vinegar. I love spicy soup. I love, you know, chewy bread. I love all of these things and they make me so happy. And I've never been good at denying myself pleasure, which, um, is not great in terms of impulse control, like as an adult sometimes, or like definitely not in my twenties. But yeah, I just feel like there was something in me, this like spirit that I'm so grateful to little baby Angela. Like there was just this spirit that I was like, no, I'm not going to be crushed. And I don't know how I did it. Honestly, like, I'm not sure what I did. So there's part of me that's like, I want this to be the same for my girls. Mm -hmm. But like, I'm not sure how to replicate. Yeah, what am I replicating exactly? It's not like I was unscathed. Like I had, you know, periods. It's just there was something where I was like, I'm going to commit. Mm -hmm. I'm going to commit to myself and double down. Like I'm, and part of it, it goes back to the beginning about why feminism. I was just like, I'm never going to fit in. So I might as well just be me. And there's something very freeing in that. I wondered if that was a piece of it. I often find women in very small bodies who live very close to the ideal have a really large struggle that in terms of internal struggle because it's like they're so close and they can't get there. I mean, fat people are experiencing oppression for their fatness. That is different. I'm talking about the sort of internal stuff. And it's not to say that fat folks don't also have those struggles because we do. But I think that when you are like a 98% on a scale that is completely uh, unrealistic. We just get there. Right. We get there. The sort of like extreme tactics to get there feel reasonable because you could get there. Whereas mm-hmm. I think if you have a body type that is like, well, that's never going to be it. You have to reckon with that earlier in some way. I feel really grateful because I feel like we have, there is still a very dominant image of beauty in the United States. But I mean, for me, I have this language now where I can say to my kids, like, you know, being beautiful. Actually, that's not like the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Like one, because you decide what's beautiful mm-hmm. and it's not the most important thing to be like the most important thing to be is an, a nice person, an empathetic person or a kind person. And there are just more images, you know, we have a mm-hmm. long way to go, but like representationally, like they see more, right? you know, and they, they go to school with mixed race kids, you right. know, like my girls are mixed race. You know, my daughter's already talking about like, I am brown Filipina daddy is American one, you know, like she has like, you know, there's, we just, my parents didn't talk to me about stuff. Mm -hmm. Like my daughters looked at a picture of me and said from like 10, 12, 14 years ago. And they were like, mommy, you got fat. Mm -hmm. And I was like, stay in it, stay in it, stay in it. You can do it. You can do it, Angela. (laughs) You've been training for this. You've been training for this, you know, and it was so hard, but I was like, yep, I got fat. Yep. They weren't weird Mm -hmm. in the moment. Fat to them is an adjective. Exactly. And that's all it is. The person who was making it hard was me, Mm -hmm. you know, and I have tenderness for myself in that moment, but I felt like, oh no, I'm I'm doing a good job here. One of the things that I hear mothers committing to is like, I am going to continue to struggle with my body. This is like not a thing I know how to solve, but I want to do my best to not say disparaging things about my body in front of my children. Or, like, to be honest with them about what's hard about it. Yeah. I don't know. What do you do? No, similar. I've had that same conversation of, yep, I'm fat. That's right. Fat bodies are great bodies. And, you know, I definitely have had that same experience of, like, oh, God, this is the moment that I (laughs) 
have been preparing yeah. for and also yeah. people ask me for advice on. And so I really better get it right now. Um, yeah, no, totally. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah. Um, I better get a newsletter essay out of this. I mean, if I don't, then what do they do? Oh, God, you know, so just to pause for a moment, like writers, we're such traitors. I know. And <laughs> when that was happening to me, I was laying on my bed and having the discussion with my girls, like about how I'm fat. And I'm like trying not to cry and I'm having all of these feelings. And this thing popped up in my mind and I was like, well, I'm going to have to write about this. Yeah, yep, this will be <laughs> This will be a great moment. <laughs> Thanks, kids. Thanks. For- <laughs> Sorry that I do this with our yeah conversations. And I think the other piece of it that you were emphasizing that, you know, letting them know that being beautiful doesn't matter that much and that it yeah. needs to matter less, that we both need to broaden our definition of beauty and we need to care less about beauty. It's hard to hold both of those together, I think. But it's, yeah, it's very difficult. It's really the crux of it, I think. You had this line in the book, which I really think you need to put on T-shirts, which is Uh eating is a necessity. Being beautiful is not. And I was like, thank you. That's right. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) That's it. Yeah. I mean, that's what it comes down to. It really comes down to that. Yeah. It's such good advice. It's so clear. You are allowed to reject this whole system that's telling you your body isn't good enough. You are allowed to just like say fuck it to that and center your own pleasure and your own hunger Yeah. And you are allowed to talk about how that is really hard sometimes. Yes. I'm contributing to the conversation and cultural change. But again, like we can't solve problems that we don't talk about. And there's so much shame and stigma around talking about bodies and how we feel about our own bodies. But yeah, like 100%. I just want to enjoy my life and my body. And like I could spend my whole life trying to make my body do a thing mm-hmm. where I could just live my life in the body that I have. Right, right. I take option two. Option two sounds much <laughs> easier and less stressful and more fun for sure. Oh my gosh, Angela, I could talk to you all day. This is such a good conversation. We will wrap up with my segment, Butter for Your Burnt Toast. This is where we give a recommendation of something you are loving. It can be an experience, a book, something you ate, anything. So what do you have for us? I recommend falling in love with your friends. Oh. I just went away on a weekend. It was supposed to be a writing retreat <laughs> with my <laughs> friend, the novelist Lydia Kiesling. We became friends because we published our books around the same time, our first books, and because our books were both about motherhood. So naturally, we were like lumped together. Right? <laughs> you either had to fight her or love her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we've never lived in the same city. And I've met her like just a couple of times. And But I've always had this feeling like, I think we would be friends. Like. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, how would we ever figure out how to do that? And then, you know, one of the things in the pandemic is I've just been like, I don't want to waste time. Like, I want to see my friends. I want to spend time with them. I want to make the most of it. And I want to invest in this friendship. And so I invited her to go away on a weekend with me. And we were going to write, but mostly we, like every morning I would, we had these adjacent little studio cabins. I would bring her coffee and a bagel with a fried egg. And then I would get into her bed and we watched Love is Blind together. (laughs) And it was just like, speaking of like physical pleasure, but like these are the things that we have been denied. And, you know, I'm not saying, you know, everyone go jump in bed with like all of your friends, but like, (laughs) you know, thank God for vaccines, right? And for being careful, like that's an option that is open to us again. Mm -hmm. And I want to like, I think what I'm saying here is I want to remind everyone that we can reawaken to things that are pleasurable and 
spending time being in the company of friends. And I just, yeah, I mean, I I call it our honeymoon. Like it was both our like third date and our honeymoon. <laughs> and I was like, what is what is better than friendship? Like, what? There's, like there's nothing better. Like nothing sex better. is great. Yeah. But yeah. have you had a friend? Have <laughs> <laughs> you talked to a friend for many hours? I did a weekend yeah. with my three best friends really from like when we were in our 20s. And now we live in all different places and we haven't seen each other, obviously, in a whole pandemic. And we did a weekend together last month. I came home, like, feeling high. Like, I was just yeah. like, what, yeah. what is that? Like, I had long conversations with these yes, women uninterrupted. that I love so much. Oh, it was amazing. Yeah, it was like three days of one running conversation. Yes, yes. And that's yes. so wonderful. It yeah, is such a good a feeling. Well, that is a wonderful recommendation. Mine is also very pleasure-related because I felt like that was going right, to be a great. theme in our conversation. I am recommending romance novels, specifically oh. Talia Hibbert and Jasmine Guillory. I have just like discovered both of them to black novelists who write about black characters specifically the women are usually in larger bodies and Uh they are really hot and there's a lot of good sex in these books yes (laughs) and they're romances so there's happy endings are guaranteed um but they're like fun and sexy and I hadn't read romance in years and years. I think I read some, like, very furtively in middle school, you know, as you do. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was, like, scanning the book <laughs> <Yeah>. for them. <laughs> when do I get to the dirty parts? Yeah. Um, and, you know, of course, like, sort of my image of a Harlequin romance was very, like, skinny white lady and, you know, big yeah. ripped brooding guy. And there's been a total evolution in the genre. There's all these great feminist it. writers writing, like, very sex positive, like, woman-centered, like, the woman always— you know, is taken care of first, to be clear. Right. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, like, and, like, chapters ahead often. Um, <laughs> like, she gets hers, and then they get around to him, like, much later on. It's pretty great. I love it. I feel like that's all the stuff that we're taught, like, we don't deserve or can't yeah. ask for. And yeah. then to see it really Yeah, and they're just, and so both of beautiful. those, I will link to them in the transcript. They're just really delightful and, you know, very heteronormative. So disclaimer on that. If listeners know of good, like, queer romance novelists, like, drop them in comments because I'm here for that, too. You're like, I just want sex. I just want people (laughs) to be having sex and loving their bodies. (laughs) Well, Angela, thank you again. This was an amazing conversation. Tell people where they can find you and follow your work. Thank you so much, Virginia. It was, like, a little bit like falling in love. It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you for having me. You can find me, my website, angelagarvez.com. On Instagram, I'm Angela Garbus. And you all need to go and get Essential Labor. It is everywhere you get your books. And yes, required reading for Burnt Toast listeners. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. Once again, if you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode. This is a really great one to share with your mom friends, guys, or other caregiver friends of any gender. And consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It's just $5 per month or $50 for the year. You get a ton of cool perks and you keep this an ad and sponsor free space. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soulsmith. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at V underscore Soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Cell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell. And Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism.